Well, we are continuing this morning in our sermon series in the Gospel according to Mark. If you remember several weeks ago, before we jumped into Holy Week, we encountered the story of Jesus and his disciples in a boat. Disciples afraid of dying, and Jesus asleep on a cushion. Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm, and the disciples just aren't sure what to make of this whole situation. They're, they're in awe of Jesus' control over all things, and yet still sort of riddled with fear. Today we're going to look at the very next encounter as recorded by Mark. Some commentators have, have noted that these are actually parallel passages, similar in nature. They approach the same ideas from differing perspectives. Today's uh, text, Jesus comes face to face with a whole host of demons within one troubled man. And while we'll certainly see the power and the authority of Jesus on display, we will learn much more as well. So I'd invite you to stand, if you're able, for our scripture text today as I read from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word to us. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he said, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Let's pray. Most high and gracious God, we thank you that 
as we search and as we study the scriptures, we discover the word made flesh. May we know you and love you and trust you even more as we recognize the incredible work that your son Jesus Christ has done for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is uh, certainly one of the more unique and maybe even strange encounters uh, throughout the entire ministry of Jesus that the Gospels pass along to us. I think it's helpful to realize the context here first, that it is a, a continuation of Mark's emphasis on Jesus bringing peace amid chaos. Just as he brought peace to that boat in the storm on Galilee, So he brings peace to this demon-possessed man and to those who lived in the area and were affected by his affliction. The Gospel of Matthew actually gives us uh, some additional detail, including the fact that both Mark and Luke leave out that there were, in fact, two demon-possessed men who were present that day. Uh, Mark focuses in on one of them, obviously pointing us toward this one in particular because he is presenting an account not necessarily, as I've mentioned in past weeks, in a biographical sense, but in order to make a clear and specific point about what Jesus has done. In other words, it's not important to Mark's account who all was there, but only the exchange that happens between this one man and the Savior. It's also worth noting that this is Jesus' first trip east of the Jordan River, east of the Sea of Galilee. So this would have been largely Gentile country. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But as we reflect on this account from the Gospel of Mark, I want to draw to your attention four responses that take place in this text. Four responses. First, I want you to see the response of the demons. The demons confess their subjection to the power Of Jesus. Look at verse 9. The demon says, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Or we could skip down to verse 12 and see similar language. The demons begged Jesus. Jesus is in the place of authority. One of the things that we see in the Gospels, especially in Mark's Gospel, is the reference, I don't know if you caught this when we were reading it, the reference to demons as impure or unclean spirits. Why does Scripture refer to them that way? You've probably seen that before. Why does, why does Jesus, why does Mark here refer to them in that way? I think to understand it, we have to look at the larger imagery of cleanliness that runs throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, if you're familiar at all with that, there was this process of ceremonial law in the Old Testament by which one would be considered clean, ceremonially clean. So for example, just one of the many examples we could point to, after childbirth, a woman was considered unclean. And there was a a segment of time if she gave birth to a boy, it was 40 days. If she gave birth to a girl, it was 80 days. We won't get into the reasons for that. It's a whole different sermon. But once the time of her uncleanliness came to an end, she would take her sacrifice to the priest, and the priest would 
make atonement for her, and she would be declared clean. We could look at a number of reasons for a lack of cleanliness according to ceremonial law. There are dozens of reasons, in fact. One thing was universally true, however. Failure to follow the prescribed path of cleansing meant that you were to be cut off from God's people. This was serious business. The cleansing process that the Old Testament law points us to is critical. But the imagery doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It's not just in Leviticus. What we see as a never-finished process of ceremonial cleansing in the Old Testament, every time you turn around, you're in need of additional cleansing. Jesus draws to a completion as he institutes this new once-and-for-all cleansing in the waters of baptism in which we are, as Paul says, buried with Christ and raised to new life. Remember Jesus' words from the upper room to Peter. Peter exclaims, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. You remember what Jesus says to him? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We see this same idea in Titus chapter 3. Same language, same significance. When Paul writes, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This cleanliness theme that has its roots in in the Old Testament. These concepts of pure, impure, clean, unclean, are just part of the DNA of the scriptures. These impure spirits were unwashed. And the notion here is that they are in rebellion against God. Just as one who was ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament and refused to go through the ritual cleansing process as prescribed by the Old Testament law would be considered in rebellion to God, the same is true of these impure spirits. This word signifies their rebellion against God, their unwillingness to be washed. They're opposed to God and all that he stands for. So this this mention of the spirits being impure is actually tied to a much bigger, much deeper biblical understanding of what it means to be right with God. And that makes the events of today's text that much more interesting. This man, under the control of these unclean, impure spirits, comes from the tombs, as Mark says, to meet Jesus. In fact, he falls on his knees in front of Jesus And he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Picture here is is compelling. Demons kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Begging him. Do you see how Mark repeats that word begging or imploring? Who is the one in control? Who is the one who holds the authority In this circumstance, just as Jesus' authority extends over the natural world, as we saw on the Sea of Galilee, today we see that it extends over the spiritual world. Everything that exists is under the authority, the dominion of King Jesus. This is reminiscent of Philippians 
chapter 2. When, when I was reading the te- this text, this was the first passage that popped into mind where Paul writes this, that God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you remember what the demon said to Jesus? Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Demons bowing at the feet of Jesus. Even these impure spirits living in rebellion against God bow their knee, confess who Jesus is. So we see the response of the demons. How about Jesus' response? What does Jesus do in response? And what we see is that he saves. He saves this troubled man. Verse 13. Jesus gave them permission and the impure spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs. The spirits ask to go out of the man and into the pigs, but it's clear that Jesus is the one who does the saving here. He ordered the impure spirits, Mark tells us, to leave. We don't know how long the man had been in this condition, but we can judge from the context that it was quite some time. The people had tried everything, including chaining him down, but nothing worked. He was too strong. He was too far gone. But when Jesus comes around, everything is different. It seems that Jesus' presence alone frightens these impure spirits to the point that they beg Jesus to send them into the pigs rather than torturing them and destroying them. And so Jesus grants their request. Now just from the fact that there is a herd of pigs nearby means that we're likely in Gentile country. We can recognize that. Pigs were unclean. And, uh, and so Jews had no use for them. There are two prevailing, two main explanations for the meaning or the significance of the pig drowning that takes place as part of this story. One theory is that Jesus allowed it, allowed them to go into the pigs knowing that the pigs would do what they did. And so Jesus was again showing his mastery and authority over all things. Some have connected this account to Exodus 14 and the account of Pharaoh's army drowning in the Red Sea. And some have said that that here we have the true enemy of God, the forces of evil being drowned in the Sea of Galilee. That's one way to to view what happens. Another theory is that the demons asked to be sent into the pigs so that they could continue their path of destruction. They knew that this would be a huge financial loss to those in the region. And so these demons stuck the dagger in again and killed this entire uh, herd of pigs. The, The truth is Mark doesn't explain it for us. He doesn't tell us why this takes place other than the basic facts that we have in our text. But what we do see clearly is that that Jesus comes to the rescue of the man who was afflicted. The man who was overcome with evil, whose life had been taken captive by the evil one. We don't see any description of what led the man to this place. We don't know if, if it was a result of the way that he was living his life. We don't know. Mark or, nor Jesus give us any indication. 
of what led to this man's situation. All we know is that Jesus sees him and saves him. This man had been terrorizing those around him, living in the tombs, controlled by evil, using rocks to cut away at his flesh, and Jesus shows up and saves. And I love verse 15. When the people of the town come out to figure out what's going on here, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. How often have we written someone off as too far gone? As too antagonistic to the gospel, as too given over to their sin, that there is no such thing. These are the people that Jesus came to save. The the greedy tax collectors, the adulterous woman, the self-righteous Pharisee, the dirty fisherman, the demon-possessed crazy guy. Every person that we encounter this week bears the image of God. Everybody that you see and come across this week is one for whom Christ died. We see the demons subject to Jesus' power. We see Jesus' response to save. And third, I want to look at the response of the people in the region. The people ask Jesus to leave. Look at verse 16. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and, and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is an interesting turn of events. We see a connection to the previous story in the gospel when Jesus calms the storm. In both stories, we see this tension between two words, between fear and amazement. The reaction of the people when, when they hear about what happened in their region, when they see the pigs floating dead in the sea, is fear. We don't know exactly why they were afraid. It seems maybe they were more afraid of Jesus' power over demons than they were of the demons themselves. This fear is certainly driven by the fact that 2,000 pigs are floating dead in the lake. The crazy guy in in the tombs was less of a threat, perhaps, than Jesus, who causes destruction like this, destruction of of wealth, of income. We we don't know. We we don't have the insight. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why they are so afraid. But what we do know is that the reaction of the people was much the same as the reaction that Jesus gets elsewhere when he saved people. He's asked to leave. He's threatened. What should have resulted in praise and worship of God for his mercy and his saving power resulted in harder hearts and further rejection. But I think there's a point here that is convicting for all of us. How many times have we been more concerned about logistics, about finances, about the trouble that it would cause, about the cost, than about the mission of God in saving the hurting, sick, and lost? How many times have we said no to bringing the grace and mercy of Christ to lost people because the price tag is too high? Some things never change about human nature. We're okay with this Jesus thing 
as long as it doesn't cost us too much, as long as it can continue to be just an addition to our lives and not a subtraction, as long as we can continue living the way that we want to live, but as soon as Jesus gets costly or awkward, as soon as there's collateral damage in our lives, we are often quick to to choose comfort over cost. It's easy to look back judgmentally on, on these people in this region, but their reaction serves as a mirror for us. There's one final response that I want to point our attention to from our text. What's the response of the man who was saved? Do you see that? He proclaims what Jesus did for him. Look at verse 20. So, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. It's interesting. The, the man, I don't know if you caught this when I read through the text, the man wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to, to go along with Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus tells him no. And instead, Jesus sends him, sends him back to his people, the people who knew how crazy he was, to proclaim what Jesus had done for him. Jesus instructs him to to go and tell his people two things. Tell them how much the Lord has done for him and how God had mercy on him. That's exactly what this guy does. The word that Jesus uses in verse 19 is is an interesting one. That word uh, translated sort of boringly in English is is tell, usually. It it comes from the same word that we get get our, our word angel. One who announces, proclaims, declares. Think about that. Jesus sends this man to proclaim, to declare, to announce to all who would listen the mercy of God. And Mark gives us this detail that he went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. The Decapolis is this region east of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, consisting of about 10 cities in this region. And so this man sort of, sort of goes from city to city throughout this region, just telling what Jesus had done for him. And what was the response? They were amazed. This word amazed is the same word that Luke uses, for example, to describe the reaction of the people when the shepherds tell about the visit from the angels announcing Jesus' birth, that people are amazed. They marveled. They saw this man whose life had been destroyed by the forces of evil suddenly saved and healed and restored and in his right mind, telling of what Jesus had done for him. And this is the very commission that Jesus in his final moments on earth would give to his church. To go and tell, announce, proclaim, to tell what Jesus has done for us and how he has been merciful to us. You see, practically there is not much difference between us and this unnamed demon-possessed man. We were all dead in our sin, living among the tombs, we might say, until Jesus saved us. This man was redeemed 
so that he might proclaim. Jesus redeemed him in order that he might go and tell and that people would be amazed. I love Jesus' words of commission to this man. He doesn't say, go and teach theology. He doesn't say, go start a ministry. He just simply says, go and tell what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's something all of us can do. Wherever God has placed you, whatever vocation he has given to you, whatever your place in life, we all have a voice to tell what God has done for us. I think it's also interesting that Jesus doesn't say, go lecture the people about their uncleanness. He doesn't say, go tell them that they shouldn't have pigs. He doesn't say, go straighten them out, fix their behavior, confront their idolatry. Those are all things that God will do. But Jesus sends this man to go and tell. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them about the mercy that you have been shown by God. Is, is, that, is that our heart? Do you see the contrast as we think back over the entirety of the Gospel of Mark so far? Do you see the contrast between the response of the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry in earlier accounts as opposed to this man who was saved by Jesus. The Pharisees pointing out everything that was wrong, keeping a record of sin, making sure that people aren't coloring outside the lines, feeling the need to stand up for and to defend God. And then the man who was saved, just proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. Has your experience with the gospel made you angry? Made you critical? Made you judgy? Or has it just moved you to proclaim because you know you don't deserve it? Which of these pictures represents our hearts? Which represents your heart today? By God's grace, may we be people who respond to the gospel by telling rather than critiquing. By proclaiming rather than judging. Jesus has done so much for us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, give us hearts that are so captivated by what you have done for us. By your great mercy, by your undeserved love that we can't help but tell. God, we're grateful that you've saved us from sin. That you've rescued us from evil. That you have you have taken us out of the tombs and brought us into the kingdom of your Son. Lord, compel us by your love to tell all who will hear what you've done for us. Leave us here today amazed at your mercy shown to sinners like us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.